I have a true confession. I'm a romantic. I love love stories, the pursuit of happiness, happily ever after, finding that perfect partner. When you think about it, every romantic comedy is based on that quest and almost all follow the same story arc. Let me know if this sounds familiar. You sit down, popcorn in hand, the first scene opens up and a couple's in front of you. What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. They're often in a relationship and fast tracking to the altar. You can see that almost immediately one is perfect and you, you fall in love with how beautiful they are inside and out. But the other one comes across quite differently. On the surface, you see why they're attracted to each other, but when their actions speak louder than their beauty, you immediately start to question, why is that perfect person marrying that other person? I'm no princess. I have no carriage, no parents, no dowry. The next scene, someone walks into the picture. Could be a wallflower, an indescript individual, the gardener, the, the wedding planner. But the director plants the seed, saying, isn't that person special? And over time, that seed grows to you. You're starting to say to yourself, why doesn't that perfect person marry them versus the other person? Because sometimes you don't see that the best thing that's ever happened to you is sitting there right under your nose. And you know what happens over the next 90 minutes or, or so, that variety of interactions and conversations that finally the one that you love comes to their sense and falls in love with the other person you love and off they go, living happily ever after. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love and love and love you. I never wish to be parted from you from this day on. I guess my question to you is, does life work that way? Do we have the confidence and conviction and good fortune to find the perfect match? Someone that transcends physical attraction to the laws of human attraction, the gives and takes, the compatibility and compromises, and I guess most importantly, to grow over a lifetime together. My guests today, yes guests, have found all of this and more. One is a self-proclaimed naked monk, and the other is an MS survivor. I was originally only going to interview one for the show, but after hearing their love story and how their destinies wove together, and together they're doing extraordinary things, I wanted to share each and both of their stories. And I hope from their stories, you gain like I've gained invaluable lessons in life. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me today are two individuals who make an extraordinary couple. They feed from each other's strengths and they shore up each other's weaknesses. They deeply care for each other and for humanity. Carolyn Curry is an author, she's a mother, She's been living with MS since 1993, and she's a wonderful life coach. And speaking of life, the love of her life is Stephen Scatini. You'll learn later how he describes his dad as a raging Catholic. Stephen's one of those ones who refused to conform to Western values, almost died in Pakistan of hepatitis, searching for his truth. Together, they offer you mindfulness. At the end of the interview, you can make up your mind if you feel there's something you can draw upon as you move through life. Before joining me as a couple, I want to first talk to Caroline. Caroline, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Nice to be here. Caroline, you grew up in my hometown, a suburb of Montreal. You're the youngest of four children. 
Your parents were Lebanese Christian immigrants. Tell me a little bit about your parents and life back then. Well, uh, pretty traditional family life. Uh, my father was part of a family of seven children, uh, the four boys, and the father created a, a family business. So he worked hard. His whole raison d'etre was to be the provider. So it was very traditional. He was patriarchal. He was kind of scary and loving all at the same time. He worked so hard. That's basically his everything he did. And my mother uh, was raised to be pretty much a housewife, stay at home, take care of the family, all that sort of thing. So I had a very stable and what I remember very much a happy, secure childhood. I had two other sisters and a brother, and uh, we were pretty well raised. The females were raised to be like her, you know, stay at home. Men were superior. Uh, we had to get married and do what she did. So we were raised like that. Although my two sisters did become professionals, uh, they were much older than me. So I watched them uh, follow their career path versus, you know, as opposed to what my mother lived. So your older sisters sort of defy your parents or becoming embodied in sort of Canadian values and follow a professional career, but you got married at 20. That's young for today's standards, but was that the norm back then? Yeah, it was still a bit young. We were a big family, so I did marry younger than everybody else. But I also married to uh, get out of the house. I married, I think, because uh, I met somebody by chance. I met him in a bar. <laughs> I was actually doing a modeling course and we were celebrating the, our graduation and he was there with a bunch of friends. And he was an older man by 12, 12 years, businessman, English, charming. And there I was feeling kind of lost. Uh, I was very shy and I was very, um, I have very low confidence in myself. So even though I was in university doing a psychology degree, I was really not feeling very confident that I could pursue a real career. So he swept me off my feet and, you know, off I went to Europe for a year and had this wild romance and he wanted to get married right away. And I just felt like this is what my father wanted. You know, you get married and he's a stable guy. He's got a good job and I can have family and that's it. My life is planned, you know. Over the decade, you, I guess you had three children. Yeah. Did that put your ideas of psychology and a career on hold and you just became you know, your mother's daughter and said, my job is now to just raise these kids? Yeah, but I, I wanted to. I really loved raising my family. It was, I wasn't trading anything off. Thinking that I was going to have a traditional life and that my husband and I had a, a deal, right? He brings home the bacon, I raise the family. That was fine with me and I loved, I loved it. So 10 years after you're married, you get divorced, your husband sweeps off to Europe and remarries. What did you do to keep your family together? Yeah, so it was it was pretty devastating at the time because uh, he left before we divorced. He he basically walked out the door the day we were supposed to together go off to Europe and relocate our family and his job in, in Europe. And he decided in that last moment, no, it's not going to work. I'll commute. <laughs> he said, you stay here with the kids and I'll just come back and forth. And I, I said, no. I said, there's no way I'm going to do that um, in my head. To him, I said, what's going on? Uh, you know, how could this happen? Why are you doing this? You're basically abandoning the kids. What advice can you give to people that get hit with such sudden change that you're not in control of that's more emotional than physical? So I, I, I remember in that moment when he said to me, I'm going, but here's that he actually handed me the airplane ticket and said, why don't you come down and we'll talk some more. And I remember the, the year before our marriage was very tumultuous. There was a lot of abuse and neglect and there was a lot of resentment. So what happened was I was basically examining 
my whole life in that that moment did I really want to go and continue this kind of a marriage did I really want to uproot leave my friends my family everything and bring my kids to a whole new place when our marriage was in such crisis so the advice I would say is look at everything and this is this ties into my whole world all the time this mindfulness stuff is Look at yourself. Look inward. How are you feeling? What's going on around you? That, that that What were the signs that brought you here? You know, I asked him, maybe we should go for therapy. He said, no. You know, I, I sort of did all the right things that I to save my marriage. There was nothing in my world that said that a divorce would even be possible. How did your kids react? Did they blame you or did they rally around you or a combination of the two? Well, you know, seven, four and 12 months. Uh, so the center of their universe kind of thing. And we were very close. And no, there was absolutely no blame at all. In fact, I'm not even sure they understood much. He wanted out. He basically said, years later, I really didn't want to be a father. I wanted to be the center of your universe. I loved you. I love my kids, but I didn't want that life. And he just left. The kids didn't know that, obviously, but they absorbed it, you know. So I did my best to be mom and dad, <laughs> you know. I mean, he was providing financial support for many years, and that really helped so that I could focus on that. And my father passed away, and then I inherited some money, so I bought the house, so I had some stability there. I know that my kids were adversely affected. There's no question about it. And today, I still see the signs of what's happened. My purpose and meaning was to provide stability and security and, and, and happy joy and love and fun. And that's what we did. My special guests are Caroline Curry and Steven Scatini, who will join the show shortly. Caroline, in 1992, your health changes. What happened and how did you know it was just not a bad day, but something that really was going to become a life sentence? Well, uh, it took a year to get diagnosed, actually. I just started sensing some really strange feelings in my legs. I was back in university, finishing my degree. That The day that first thing happened, I was actually at a a psychology workshop with John Bradshaw, healing the shame that binds you. I'll never forget it. And I started having these weird sensations and I was terrified and it, and, and there was nothing I could do. So I would go to doctors and physiotherapists and it took, like I said, a year. I didn't know until I got diagnosed and I was diagnosed over the phone. My doctor calls me up and says, oh, by the way, you have MS. That was the most devastating thing because I didn't even know anything about MS. To me, it was a death sentence. I had three small children. Father was gone. It was the most terrifying moment. I just crumbled to the floor crying. How old were your kids then? So 11, 8, and 5. Did they sense the fear that you were feeling? They didn't know. I didn't tell them. I didn't tell them for a few weeks, actually. So I was alone with that. And I, I needed to process it myself before I thought I could bring it to the kids. How did your siblings react? Because you, you mentioned being the youngest. How did they feel about you having this? Very little reaction, I'm afraid. My siblings and I sort of, in my view, we kind of grew up in separate worlds. You know, we didn't really have a close relationship. I don't know if that's because of the age or just the way we were brought up. So my sister, the eldest one is the psychologist, is very, very pragmatic. And she goes, well, it is what it is. And that was that. (laughs) So I didn't, that hurt me actually, because I had felt, I wanted their support very much. And I didn't, I didn't get it. Once again, you turn to your priest, who's also your friend for counseling. Yeah. And he in turn becomes your matchmaker. He knew that I was alone with the three small children. And my eldest son was having uh, some trouble at school and I could see him struggling with bullying. 
And so I spoke to my priest and I told him about it one night he came for dinner. I was actually looking to find a big brother for my son. I knew he needed a good male role model in his life and I couldn't do it. And I applied to the big brothers. It was like a year long waiting list and it was frustrated. So he said, oh, I know somebody, maybe this guy will help. And that was in his mind was trying to find me a man who we thought would help in the family. And, and I knew this guy. I had seen him years and years before. He's from the Lebanese community. There's always functions and things. So we knew each other. And the times that he came to visit my son, we got closer and we chatted. And this man was lovely. I'm not here to bash anybody. His intention was, I want to rescue this family. I'm going to put everything back together and I'm going to be the hero. And there I was, this terrified woman, not knowing if I'm going to be in a wheelchair, how am I going to take care of my my kids? This is where I was. I, I wasn't me. I was very vulnerable and scared. He did seem like the knight in shining armor. And so we we dated and, and we got closer and he just loved being there for the kids and doing stuff and all that. But at the same time, I ignored all the red flags of other things that ended up being the reason why we broke up. I was basically uh, thinking that this is going to be something to make my children have a safe, again, foundation and family. And I even had another child. What I'm fascinated about your story is when you think about you've lost your dad, two men in your life are no longer with you, but you still find the courage to go from dealing with your disease and your circumstances to deciding that maybe your path in life is to help others. First of all, I always felt that was part of who I was. Even as a teenager, I was the one that the kids would come to and ask for advice and all that. So my role was already sort of set. I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist and a therapist. When I was diagnosed and went into this survival mode, I realized I had to learn how to handle it. What was I going to do? How are we going to move forward? So I joined support groups and I, and I watched how other people were handling the disease. And I didn't like what I saw at all. I saw people sort of becoming very uh, complacent and not active, just accepting and falling into this rabbit hole. And I, I knew that's what I didn't want to do. What I did get from the support group what was being with others and, and being able to talk about it. But what I ended up doing was creating my own support group in, in my community in, in the West Island of Montreal and uh, getting everything donated. I just sort of, I don't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I just did it. And, and it happened. You know, I got this room and people were coming and, and we were chatting. And I just loved the energy and the, the connection and the, and, and the relief. And I only had, had at that point MS for five years and I was helping people who had had it for 10 and 20. And I felt very terrified and scared that I was, they would think that I didn't have a right to say what I was saying or do what I was doing, but that's not what happened at all. The space, this atmosphere of, of trust and love and camaraderie really was empowering for me and for them. So I, I did also seek help from a counselor who encouraged me for, for, you know, my life theme was not enough confidence or self, self-worth self really to, to do this kind of stuff. And she pushed me to do it. And then I wrote a book and then I did other things. So it was always facing these challenges, looking at these things that seemed incredibly insurmountable. I guess there was this drive in me to keep going. So you write this book called Cross Signals. Why did you write it? I mean, how would it benefit you and how would it benefit your readers. That wasn't actually my idea. My pediatrician had approached me 
uh, because he was wanting to write books about chronic illness um, and how it impacts teenagers. And he asked me if I would write notes about my experience and ultimately said he was writing a book. And I said, well, you know what? After a while, I started thinking, but I said, I want to write the book. And he said, great, I'll help you. So we would meet, have lunch every three or four weeks. The book is a novel written from a teenager's point of view. So what I was trying to do is to get into the heads of my kids who were teenagers or becoming teenagers at the time. I had no idea it was going to be a book that was going to be published or anything at all. It was just, for me, a cathartic experience, self-exploration from my perspective and from them. So this is all about empathy. Like, what's it like to be a kid with a parent with, with a chronic illness? And that's what the book was about. And the protagonist was my daughter's name. You know, I just said her name is Melanie and it stuck. And so while I'm writing the book, I'm learning about how I'm dealing with it. And, and then my doctor friend, <laughs> the pediatrician, encouraged me to pursue it to, to the point where I, I actually decided to self-publish. And that's how I met my husband. <laughs> so you, you, you met your husband because he turns out to be the editor that you need to give a, a fresh pair of eyes on your book. Exactly. Just tell me about how that first meeting went with Stephen. I'm about to bring him into the conversation, but just, you know, he comes up to be your editor. What, what was your first impression of Stephen? Well, uh, a mutual friend uh, invited me for dinner. Stephen was a very close friend of theirs. She said, well, come for dessert. You know, she says, come and you can... You can ask him yourself. He's a writer. And I said, okay. And I remember being very nervous. And I, I brought the book, but I left it in the car. I didn't want to look too pushy or <laughs> pretentious. So I met him and, and he was, you know, I just looked at him and uh, he was smiling. And, and he said, sure, I'll look at it. And I was so terrified. You know, I was just meeting this big, scary dude that's going to decide the course of my life or help me. So I, it was intimidating, <laughs> just to say. When you have a disease like MS, and you become physically attracted to someone, how do you overcome in your mind you're not worthy or that they're inheriting more than, than I could possibly worth? be worth? Yeah. Well, I did tell him once we were getting serious. At one point, he wanted to get married, and I said, no. I said, absolutely not. Not only do I not want to get married, because that would be three times and that would be crazy. I said, no, you shouldn't. Don't, run. Run the other way. Don't get involved with me. I am a woman with four children and MS. Are you crazy? Like all of that. As much as he was attracted to me and I was attracted to him and we were devoted to each other, I, I knew that things were going to get harder and I, I didn't want to put him through that. When he and I got together, my two boys had, had already left the house. They were grown and gone. I had the two girls with me. One was 11 and one was uh, three or four at the time. So there was a lot that I I knew he had never experienced before. It was just a whole new world for him, as you're going to learn where he came from. It's nothing completely foreign, which is basically what he was rejecting when he was in his early 20s and ran off to India. <laughs> so, he, you know, the, the last thing he was thinking of was a traditional life with a wife and kids in a house in the suburbs. <laughs> so I said, you, you can't, you can't stay here. <laughs> Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. We come back, there's not a better time to learn about Stephen's story. It involves a raging Catholic, a Danish girl that saves him on his deathbed in Pakistan, studying to become a Buddhist monk, quitting and reframing his path in life as the naked monk. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. 
Find out more at rbc.com slash smallbusinessnavigator. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. I'm chatting with two extraordinary people who have become a magical couple chasing a higher purpose in life. Joining me next is Carolyn's husband, Stephen Scatini. He's a restless youth from a troubled home. He travels the world looking for answers, escapes near death in Pakistan, and then becomes a Buddhist monk. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Tony. Good to be here. Stephen, when we chatted, you described your dad as a raging Catholic wielding a bamboo rod. <laughs> Tell me where you grew up and how did that, what was the kind of the environment that you were within? I grew up in the west of England in Gloucester. When you say it back to me, raging Catholic, it sounds like an overstatement because he wasn't, he wasn't physically raging, but he was inside. I mean, it was the only thing I think that really mattered to him. His Catholicism was like a lifeline. And he was very intolerant. He wasn't, uh, as many of that generation, he was a good provider, but he wasn't much of a parent. You know, he wasn't really present. I basically went off the rails. He and my mother met in the circus. He was a lion tamer and she was an acrobatic dancer. This was just before the war. So when, when war was declared, my father, being Italian, was immediately arrested and thrown in jail. Anyway, they managed to maintain the romance and uh, they got married during the war. My mother lost her British nationality, even though she was born in Britain. Out of that came, as said, my father longed to be in England. He hated Mussolini. He hated Italy. He wanted to be British, but he never felt accepted. He was always known as a bloody foreigner. Well, that's what he thought. And, and it wasn't completely untrue, you know. That formed him in many ways. He was, he was angry. But he was also a very sociable person who got along very well with his customers. He had a good restaurant, a great restaurant, actually. And he had this ability to socialize and be very generous and, and, and outgoing with strangers. He was honorable to his, his family, but he, he just he wasn't very intimate. It wasn't just his religion you had to deal with. You went off to a Catholic school and you described, you know, being taught by nuns and rods were flying around there because I think you're a bit of a rebel. <laughs> so what was your overall thinking about the church going through that whole process? Well, I was trying to avoid going to hell, wasn't I? I mean, <laughs> this started when I was, well, as soon as I was able to understand anything, I was introduced to the idea of hell. Also, I was told that I was a Catholic. And for all the different religions and all the different races in the world, Catholics had a chance, a possibility of not going to hell. The floor of hell is riddled with fallen Catholics. And I was afraid of being a fallen Catholic. Um, and in fact, I became one. I'm sure by now you're sensing a, the sense of humor that follows Stephen around. And he talks about graduating university. Instead of seeing opportunity, you describe prospects as, uh, as binding you. I quote, I was about to bind myself to a desk, a job, a wife, a mortgage, and 2.4 kids. And then you remind me that given my my dating experience in university, actually the wife and 2.4 kids was an impossibility. <laughs> but you, you really were, you got out of school and you're saying this wasn't enough for me. But you made a major life decision. I mean, a lot of kids go off and, you know, they might try to find themselves traveling or doing a gap year, but you didn't just do a gap year. You completely went 180 degrees, didn't you? In terms, terms of trying to find who you were. Again and again. One feature, one stable feature of my life until I met Caroline was um, my extreme instability. I was reckless. I was uh, restless as well. I kept moving. 
when I finally left the monastery and moved to Canada, I moved, I changed my apartment between every 12 months and every 18 months. I was changing constantly. Do you think being the son of a lion tamer and that sort of circus mentality was sort of woven into your DNA as well? I never knew my father as a lion tamer. Um, that was done by the time I came along. But there was a big suitcase in, in the main closet of our house, which was full of the old publicity shots and the images. And, and I used to live in that suitcase. So those images were imprinted on me. And I grew up with a very romantic idea of what life should be. Uh, it should be an adventure. Absolutely. There's no question about that. So the idea of a desk job was, was I wasn't joking. I was terrified. When I realized I was about to graduate and, and go into that world, I realized that I had to make a 180-degree change because I, I would never be happy. So you run off to Pakistan and you talk about having hepatitis that was that you were at basically on your deathbed and you got saved by a Danish girl. What happened there? I got hepatitis. I got very sick. And at the same time, my problems were multiplied by my desire for solitude. And by this time, I got into the state where I thought that human beings were the problem and I wanted to get away from them. I had this idea of solitude and going in a cave. And, and so I ended up in this tiny little village right at the top of the Kalam Valley and at the top of the Swat Valley, actually, where all the Taliban have been for the last 20 years. I felt very isolated. I was very isolated and um, I didn't know what to do with myself. I started shooting morphine. And uh, that was really the danger. I was recovering from hepatitis until I started doing morphine. I had met this girl oh, a few weeks earlier. I, I, I was in the valley there for about three months, I think, altogether. We got to know each other. So she came up to visit me and she saw the conditions I was living in. She saw what I was doing. She gave me And she basically told me to get my act together and get the hell out of there. And she even told me where to go. She said, you should go to India, go to Dharamsala, go stay with the Tibetans. I said, well, why don't you come? She was a sex worker there in the Swat Valley. Somehow, I don't know how, she got herself into a bind. She felt she couldn't leave. She was stuck. That was her life. But she took the time to, to get me out of there. You follow her advice. You move to India. And was that really the first time you found a place that you belong? Yeah, that's exactly what I felt. I was very cerebral and, and you know, I, I wasn't in touch with myself. And I thought... The reasons that I was doing this were entirely philosophical, that I was making rational decisions and choices. And how long did you stay there and what did you do? Well, I became a Buddhist monk. I stayed with the Tibetans for eight years. I learned all about Buddhism and the Buddha. I thought at first that um, finally I found something that had the answers. Unlike Catholicism, Buddhism would work. And after eight years, I realized that Buddhism was just another religion and the Tibetans are just another people. So that was time for my next 180. <laughs> and that brought you back to Montreal and you started blogging as the naked monk. After having been found and getting a sense of, of wholeness, I suddenly found myself completely alone again. I didn't want to go back to England. I did not want to get involved with my family or anybody. I, I felt that would be a sort of a defeat. I, I sort of went backwards in many ways. It was only after I met Caroline, I understood the value, the absolute necessity for a support system. It was because I met Caroline that I was finally able to put all that Buddhist stuff that I'd learned into practice. She talked about you coming in to help her edit her book. What was it like when you first met her? Because you strike me as someone that 
wouldn't easily open up to other people. Yeah, that's interesting because I just heard Caroline say that, that she found that meeting, she found me very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And what was intimidating was my silence. It was very hard to get two words out of me in those days. But she was cute as hell. <laughs> she was not just interesting. She was interested in me. You know, you walk into a bank machine little enclosure thing with her and I was doing doing a transaction. I turn around and she's talking to the guy behind me. She's got half his life story in like the first two minutes. She just does that. People just open up with her. She's a natural born coach. And, and that's what happened to me. And she was the first person I'd met really who I thought really, really wanted to know this weird, strange, bizarre life that I'd led. How is your relationship? I mean, your experiences... As Caroline said, what you ran away from, you've now found with Caroline in terms of this nuclear family. I mean, how does in the fusion of uh, what Caroline's been dealing with, with as a life coach and also dealing with disease, is that also part of what you bring to people? Is it that, that it's much more than I'm just teaching someone else's learnings, but in many cases, I've lived it as well? Absolutely. The big mistake that I made was trying to isolate myself. And I learned it very, very well. I mean, <laughs> I, I isolated myself as, as well as I could. And, and I found out what the consequences are of that. So when I met Caroline, and she presented a, a fairly compelling picture of a nice, stable, uh, happy life, I thought I'd give it a try. I was quite shocked. I was surprised that I was actually attracted to such... Uh, what I call the conventional person. I don't know. We just clicked. And there are two things about a relationship. First, you need the chemistry. Chemistry has got to be there. The second thing is you've got to work on it. Caroline has absolutely the will to work on it. And, and so do I. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. My special guests are Caroline Curry, who's been living with MS since her early 90s and has made her quest in life to help others. And Stephen Scatini, who grew up with the rod, who ran from a conventional life, became a Buddhist monk. And together, they're trying upon each other's strengths to create mindfulness live. This is about taking the time each day to celebrate the fact that you're alive, you're breathing, you're conscious. And you have a say in the way that your mind and your reactivity works. And that affects the way you feel and the way you experience your life. So it's really worth it. Caroline and Stephen, there's hundreds, potentially thousands of ways which people can access mindfulness, meditation, ways to find peace. Why do you feel what you're doing with Mindfulness Live is different? There are two ways of learning mindfulness, basically. One is to go the secular route and take one of these courses, which, uh, you know, in the last 20 years have really expanded exponentially. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. There, There are many variations on it. Usually based on a 10-day course or something like that, it gives you a great introduction to the actual techniques of mindfulness and how to do it. The other way of learning mindfulness is going to a Buddhist monastery or going to a Buddhist teacher and getting this huge sort of religious or quasi-religious interpretation of what the Buddha taught uh, and, and sort of putting mindfulness in there. I don't do either of those. What we're doing, especially in the Mindfulness Live, is to provide a support system for people who want to practice mindfulness. Learning mindfulness is easy. The problem is keeping it up. I I would wager that there is no easier thing to procrastinate about than practicing mindfulness. It's so hard to just make the decision to sit down for 10 minutes and do nothing because there are so many things in our life which are always carrying us forward. So 
what is the most important to me is, as well as teaching mindfulness, is providing a, a place where people can go regularly where they can actually maintain the practice. As well as teaching the technique of mindfulness, I also teach the themes which go along with it. The themes which turn it from a, an abstract or a, an isolated practice into a whole lifestyle. We talk about things like denial, avoidance, and procrastination, and also love and compassion, care. There are many, many, many themes that are elaborated in Buddhism in a very religious context that I've learned to interpret in a completely secular way, but in a way which really supports and reinforces a mindfulness practice. So how would my listeners get hold of what you're doing? Is it mindfullesslive.ca? That's it. It's not expensive. We've made it really accessible to everybody. What would you say you feel when someone's really immersed themselves in what you offer, how does that impact their head, heart, and hands? It puts your life up into another sphere. The purpose of mindfulness is to let go of reactivity. So as you start practicing, and if you, if you practice meditation of any sort, you, the first thing you notice about your mind is that it is extremely reactive. We're constantly banging back and forward like billiard balls on a table. Learning to just let go of that and learning to be still is, is life-changing because instead of reacting to the world, you actually start to observe it. You're simply more present in your life. Caroline, I mean, I've done the math. You've been living with MS for almost three decades. Tell me how you've found a way to deal with the disease and live this kind of life where you're bringing so much good and life to others. Well, what happened was uh, in 2014, I was so sick that I could barely get out of bed. I'd say 80% of my day was in bed. I had so much vertigo and dizziness and I was overweight by 30 pounds. I was pretty well depressed and seeing myself ending up in an institution that year. I had learned from doing research, always looking for, you know, some sort of help out there on the internet. And I discovered Dr. Terry Walls, who herself an MS survivor with secondary progressive, and she had devised this protocol. And it's basically diet and lifestyle. Stephen and I together changed our lifestyle and our diet, <clears throat> which was dramatic. He didn't have to do it, but he wanted to so that we would be in it together. So the support 100% important. And I see how people choose not to do that. And I've tried to help people with this. And it seems to inspire people because they do see how I got energy and strength and my skin looks better. I got younger. So there's constant movement, literally, figuratively, emotionally, <laughs> mentally, spiritually, if you want to say just from that inner sort of hope and drive to keep going. And Caroline, how would people get hold of you if they wanted you to become their life coach. Absolutely. Well, my website is kuri.com, C-O-U-R-E-Y.com. So I always end my show with the three things I learned today. And the first thing I've learned is there's absolutely true love. I hear each of you talk about it. You're just giving the generosity, how each has helped the other. And I think that's so special. And I hope that so many people listening have someone in their life that allows them to escape the solitude and and to connect and to have that kind of chemistry that Stephen talks about. Second thing is is curiosity. This word's woven through both of their conversations. You know, when Caroline's diagnosed with it, she has curiosity and she starts to find different answers. She's not spoon fed. She doesn't fall in with the herd. She she's curious. She's open minded. And Stephen's curiosity took him all over the world. The final thing that I heard today is how important it is when we're feeling that we're standing on shifting sand, we're feeling insecure, uncertain, not worthy, 
how important it is to have that priest or friend or partner or someone like Caroline or Stephen that you can reach out to and get that helping hand. Thank you so much for joining me in a chat of the matters. Why, thank you so much, Tony. I hope uh, I hope it all made sense. <laughs> joining me now on Chatter That Matters, Don Ludlow. He's the VP of Financial Services at RBC. Don, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Tony. So I'm hearing a lot about what you're doing to support small business. I know October is Small Business Month. Give us sort of the headlines of what we can expect from RBC. Uh, there's a fantastic resource called RBC Small Business Navigator, one-stop shop online tool uh, or set of resources that uh, gives everything you need, whether that's uh, tips and guidebooks, uh, beyond banking solutions, and all kinds of resources to help you start or uh, grow your existing business. We know uh, at this point in the pandemic, there's a number of priorities that small business owners uh, need to address. Uh, those include uh, embracing e-commerce and digital payments, building ties with their local communities, and of course, looking after the well-being of their, uh, of their employees. We have a bunch of different ways that we can help them uh, with that, whether it's uh, through Moneris and Bookmark to help them with e-commerce solutions. We have a great app called um, Nextdoor, which helps small business owners uh, build connections in their local communities. And, uh, another great resource called Wello, which is a partner of ours uh, that provides uh, digital and uh, online solutions to uh, for their employees. And when we look at Stephen Scatini and Carolyn Curry, they're a family business. One's a mindfulness coach, Carolyn's a life coach. Everything's wrapped up together, their house, their mortgage. How does a bank stay in step to make sure that they're managing the growth of their business, but also preserving their assets along the way? One way to think about it as a business owner uh, is that you've got a bunch of activities you're trying to do. You're, you're trying to manage your business day to day. You're also trying to manage the critical activities of being a business owner. And finally, you're obviously trying to make sure that that's all uh, interconnected and aligned with your personal finances. And in a small family business, you know, there's a real tendency for these things to become blurred. At times, step back and think about those in distinct and separate ways. So keep the, the running of the day-to-day -day business a bit separate from the ownership of the business and make sure that that's all tied in to your personal finances. And I think it's really important to talk to experts for each of those um, activities and, and get advice where you can. At RBC, we have this tremendous uh, process or conversation called business owner planning. And it really aims to walk business owners through, especially those last two parts, the, the key things you need to think about as a business owner and making sure that that's aligned with your personal financial goals and dreams. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.